people who say I'm great at building relationship, I'm great at building connections, maybe a handful, maybe on a good day, you might get three out of 20 sales professionals ask a question about the daughter. The rest of them go right to the agenda. They go right to, what do you want to cover in the time they have? Some of them get angry. They say, well, do you want to know what I would say or what I'm thinking? I'm like, well, what are you thinking? And they're like, well, how dare they? My time's valuable and why would they do this? It's just fascinating to watch. And what the point of that whole thing is that the best of us, particularly those that are blind to it though, really miss report cues. People are giving us report cues all the time, but we have our own agenda, our own pressures, and we miss them. And then we talk about how we're great at building a relationship and we're just not. Friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was John Reed. John's the founder of his own sales advisory firm, J.M. Reed Group, and author of the book titled Moving from Models to Mindset, Rethinking the Sales Conversation. And I have to say, I just flat out liked John's book, and I recommend that everyone get your own copy and read it. You know, John and I found ourselves in violent agreement about many of the main points in his book. And so we're going to dig into why so many of our sales training dollars seemingly are misspent. Now, most of you know this is a particular concern of mine and one I love to talk about or rant about from time to time. So we're going to get into that. John also shares a great story about the primary method he used to learn about how to sell, particularly in the early part of his career. And it's so very simple. You'll make sure you check that out. And one of the great takeaways from our conversation is learning how John thought his way through his sales career. Now, think about that. He thought his way through his sales career. And I think this is so very, very important for anybody who wants to advance. So, we're also going to spend some time talking about what separates the above average sellers from the average sellers. Because if you think about it, I mean, all salespeople pretty much receive the same training and have the same basic skill set. So, what is it that enables some to achieve more consistent results? And again, the answer is pretty simple and one that every seller can use. So, you're going to stick around for that. All this and much, much more. But before we get to John, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we certainly appreciate it if you give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you very much for that. And if you haven't already connected with me on LinkedIn, you can find me at linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. John Reed, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Andy. Yeah, we've been planning this for a long time. <laughs> we finally made it happen. Either between, I had to reschedule, you had to reschedule. So glad you're here because it gave me a chance to uh, read your book, Moving from Models to Mindset, Rethinking the Sales Conversation. And yeah, I got to tell you, it's your book's headed to the top of my list of uh, favorite sales books I've read recently. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's just good common sense thinking about what we need to address in sales to help people perform better. And in a very simple, straightforward way that's not uh, full of uh, unnecessary complexity, which I think is really what's needed. Yeah, thank you. That was the intent. So it was intended to be pragmatic and something that obviously didn't have a lot of complexity to it because that doesn't make something easy to apply. Yeah, well, it got me thinking about a number of things because you have the stat in there, which I've seen other places too, is that the annual spend on sales training in the U.S. is $20 billion dollars. And you know, if you if you look at that and say, okay, well, gosh, you look at these reports that are showing the sales performance or the number of reps attaining quotas dropping year over year for the last seven to eight years. What are we getting for that twenty billion? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know who's I know who's doing well. Big, large sales training organizations, <laughs> they're they're doing fine, uh, but the actual uh, participants, really, right? The learner, if you really get down to it, because the sales organization can be doing fine because you can have some people carrying the organization, but if you get to the learner level, some people are being you know overfed models and underserved something that's actually going to work. So if if you say you know who's who's uh, what does this all mean? Well, there's, there's people out there trying to sell. That's their call in life. That's what they're trying to do well, and they're just not being equipped to do that effectively. But where's where's the sort of real challenge lie? I mean, is it the learning methodology? Is it uh, which certainly I'm sure is part of it? Is it you know the content of what we're trying to train people? I mean, where do we start trying to fix that? Wow. I mean, it is. It, it's a little bit like the industrial uh, military complex when it comes to training, because training you can have these training providers and HR, and you know they they they've got a symbiotic relationship where we'll certify you, or you know we have the latest book, we have the latest thing, and so it kind of it's fed itself for a long time that sort of that sort of industry, and it's an industry built on intellectual property, so it's an industry built on that somebody's written a book like me. And that because I've written a book, naturally, I can deliver training, which mm-hmm. are two unrelated things, but let's <laughs> yeah, stay with right. me. So I've written right. a book. I can start a training company. And the answer is the intellectual property. The answer is the model. The answer is the belief system is that, you know, the model is the answer. But there's one way to sell. Then this person has happened on it, right? This, yeah, you know, I've happened on it. It's the right way. It works in any context. And if it doesn't work, it's got to be you. It's either your <laughs> commitment to the spend wasn't as big as we hoped. It was you didn't buy enough. You're not using it right. Um, of course, we've made it hard for you to use it right because we don't really want you to integrate it with other stuff that might be working in other people's intellectual property. We don't really want you to make copies and send it around or have reinforcement unless you pay us more for that. So we really don't want you to apply it in an easy way. What we want you to do is buy our intellectual property, listen to us, talk about it, it, and just fall in line. Yeah, and keep buying it. Yeah, and keep buying it. It's just amazing, right? I mean, I I come from business. I spent the first half of my career in industry, and I joined the training development industry kind of late, and I worked for a variety of companies uh, before I started my own 11 years ago. And I just noticed this. I was just fascinated by like, I want to say it's a scam that people are running because these people are well-intended, and they really do believe they have the answer, and they want to do value. But it's hard to get at. They just, they just, these training companies have a difficult time getting out of their own way. They believe they have the answer versus believing they have an answer. So I believe I have an answer, but I don't think it's the answer. Once you think it's the answer, you're a zealot. You're right, yeah. they're wrong. It's, it's a whole bunch of unhealthy things show up that don't help for learning. Well, I think one of the things that comes out of that is this idea that everybody has to comply to that model and that somehow that model, that methodology is appropriate for all the sellers in your company. Yeah. It's, it's and, insane, which is which is absolutely insane, and yet it seems like this is this is becoming more prevalent in sales organizations. As we need to have people be more compliant with our process, with our playbook, with our methodology, and if you're not, then yeah, we don't have room for you. And I think I think what we're heading for oftentimes is you know we're really aiming for the least common denominator. Yeah, I mean I. 
there's always that tension between process rigor and skills, right? Is it a behavior issue? Is it a, is it a process issue? Is it an offering issue? You know, what, what are we trying to solve for? And it's very attractive to try to solve it in a metric way, in a KPI way and say, look, we're just going to have, but you know, I still want, I'm still curious as to what comes out of their mouth when they talk to a client. I'm still kind of curious as to you know, how they handle an objection, how do they present solution? I mean, I think all that matters uh, more, frankly, um, but the, the industry has really gone gone driven by Salesforce, driven by CRM, all these tools. It's become a tool-driven sales approach. Um, and we've lost some of the art that comes with the conversation and, these, and sort of the underlying belief system in order to be effective in any system. Which you're implying, which I think is, I agree with, is that selling is neither completely art nor completely a science. It's a mix. Oh, yeah, definitely a mix. It's It's... And it's all contextual. So that I was—I mean, I was just off a call, and this this private equity firm uh, believes that this one salesperson that they have in one of their portfolio customers is the greatest salesperson who ever lived. Um, <laughs> but I, I had to kind of convince them that he's good in the context of that sale. Right. It's a very transactional sale. It's a very uh, high relationship sale. But I think he would have his lunch eaten if he had to do a long term complex sale with multiple decision makers. I don't think he'd be effective in that context. So context matters in selling. Well I think context matters in in two different dimensions. One is certainly the the dimension you mentioned, which is um <laughs> that yeah, what you're selling, who you're selling it for, who you're selling it to, that context is really important in terms of dictating someone's ability to succeed. The other context though, and I think this is what gets lost is that sales is a series of moments, right? We can have yeah. this, all this process we want, but sales happens in these discrete moments that are strung together to create a buying experience that hopefully results in an outcome for you. And there's context for each of those. Yeah. You know, being able to successfully navigate from one to the other requires understanding the context that you're in. And we were struggling, obviously, helping sellers to understand how to process that and how to operate in that environment. Well, there's a lot of forces that, I mean, the book, the book that I wrote, this particular book's about, you know, moving from models to mindset. That's the underlying belief system you got to get your head wrapped around. That if you get your beliefs right, uh, then your the skill, the behaviors will probably show up fine because once you understand the underlying belief. The second book I was going to write, if I, I'm not going to write this book, but, you know, I, I was teaching my own team, you know, it's, it's all about the second call. It's not about the first call. The first call is just to get you the second call. And so if you really think it's about that second call, what do you need to do on that first call to get that second call? Mm-hmm. Um, to your point, it's about, it's about thinking. It's a process. It's about those moments. It's about what, you know, what do you do when and why do you do that then? And there's an art to that. There is. I mean, but there's a, I mean, certainly some experience-based, obviously. But um, when you talk about mindset, though, this is sort of interesting because people, when talk about mindset, they tend to think it's all about this power of positive thinking. And I don't think that's what you're really referring to when you talk about mindset. Oh, not at all. Quite, quite the contrary. There's uh, enough uh, books about, you know, that uh, that stuff just doesn't work. And, I, and I'm not a big believer in that. I am a, a, Pink does talk about the idea that if you're stressed out or nervous, you might use, uh, you might ask yourself cognitive questions to get at. Mm. So you might say, why am I going to be successful? Why, why is this going to go my way? Which isn't positive thinking. It's just trying to tone down your emotional brain and tap into your cognitive brain. When I talk about mindset, I'm talking about, you know, what, what do I believe in terms of why people buy? 
What do I believe in terms of how to build trust? Um, just what's my underlying belief about all that, that, that stuff? What does the science tell us? What does the social science and neuroscience tell us I need to do? And then once I embrace that, execute on it. Yeah, I, I, so I, I define that as having a, there are two words or two phrases we can you know, interchange. One is having a philosophy, yep. right? Or having a defined point of view about why things happen, how they happen, and so on. And I think that the disservice that sellers do to themselves oftentimes, and, and certainly organizations do it as well, is by saying there's just one way that sales happens and hewing to this methodology is people aren't encouraged to develop that point of view, that singular point of view about, yeah, my, my yeah. experience is this is in this, in this context, in this situation, this is likely what's going on. Sure. They, I mean, there's a place for models, right? A handling objection model makes sense. Uh, a model around how you might open a call makes sense because then you can coach to it. Then you can assess yourself against it. Then you can say, okay, this is what I didn't do well that time. That's why the call didn't open effectively. But a model as the whole thing is just silly. I mean, it's just, it feels by its own weight. And so we, I do, I have a belief in models. Somebody said, oh, you're the guy that hates models. I'm like, no, I just don't <laughs> think the model is the answer. Uh, in, but I think there's a place for them. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it a little bit differently, which is that, yeah, models are, are important. But for me, the well-prepared salesperson is the one who knows or has a sense about what to do when things don't happen according to the model. Yeah. And I think that's what sales fundamentally is, is, I don't know, you've been in sales for a long time, just like I have. I mean, how often has anything gone according to plan? I mean, it does, but, <laughs> but not to freak out the listener, like it never goes to plan. But the, yeah, there are those moments where you've got to you know, lean back on your skills, on your belief system, on, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm going to ask a question. I'm not going to talk. That's, you know, just rule one. Questions are always the answer. Ziegler said that. Zig Ziegler. Uh, he's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's certain things as you get wisdom, you know, as you, as you go through stuff, you start to say, well, that didn't work. I'll do this. That didn't work. I'll do this. Uh, and so you, you, you sharpen your craft as you go, of course. Yeah. Well, I think part of the craft is, and a significant part of the craft is, having that flexibility and adaptability sort of take in unexpected bits of information and synthesize them into a, a the right response. Yeah, that's why, uh, you know, I, I was, I mean, well, I'll just, I think I'll name names, but uh, the most popular one, like spin selling, but there's other leaders in this field. Uh, spin's less of a leader these days. But the, um, you know, the idea that was a model and you put the customer through the model, it's just like, you know, farce to me. It's like, really? That's what we're going to go do? I mean, they're not going to see that. <laughs> we're not going to have a genuine conversation. We're going to try to force them into this construct mm-hmm. uh, that somebody said they observed people and it worked. Um, I know Rackman, I mean, maybe his research is good, maybe it's not, but I can tell you that I've never spun anybody. I, that wasn't the framework in my head when I was selling anyone. Uh, I was having conversations that I was genuinely curious about what they were trying to do. And if something didn't make sense, I might challenge them on it. Or yeah. I might say, geez, I would do it this way. Why are you doing it that way? I had no, un- you know, and I never thought it was about relationship. Like I want them to like me. I thought they probably did. I don't think any customer wakes up and says, Oh, I hope a salesperson calls me today. And I hope I no. really like them. and We become friends. No. They wake up and they go, I got a problem. And I hope that the salesman calls me, he's not going to waste my time talking at me. It's, it's just so obvious to me. 
that that's how they wake up. So I, I want to come along th- that journey with them. But other training doesn't, does, most training doesn't have that conversation, for example. You can go through lots of sales training and never have that fundamental conversation. Well, and so you focus a lot on the book in sort of that, that first conversation, the connection, building yep. the connection. And uh, you say that one of the first things you want to sort of shift is people's perception of what a relationship means in sales. And so to you, what does a relationship mean in sales? It means that they trust you. It means that they believe when you speak, you're doing it with their interest in high regard, that you're not self-serving, that you're not doing it because you're under some sort of pressure to make a number, uh, that, that they, yeah, that they can really trust you. And, and because they can trust you, if they have a problem, they're going to reach out to you. And that they see you as more curious than just about what they can buy and sell from you. But you're curious about their business as a whole and them as a human as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, you're just not going to ask about, you know, how many containers did you buy last month and what, you know, because our questions reveal a lot about us. I'm going to ask about two years from now, where do you see, you know, the company heading? Because I'm telling you by that question that I'm going to be around two years from now. Mm-hmm. But if I only ask short-term transactional questions, then that, that sends a different message. So, you know, getting my head wrapped around that in terms of relationship. So it's all about trust, obviously, but it's not... a it's not about being liked. It's about being. It's more on the on the respect end of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's I, one of the ancient Greek philosophers. I I forget which one it was Plato or Aristotle or someone is saying that uh, you know described this type of relationship as a, a friendship of utility, and and I think that describes that's, it. Right. Yeah, that's it. That would be it. It's it's not not an emotional friendship. It's it's doesn't have to be a friendship. But you know, he sort of brought it. But it's not a utilitarian relationship. I think. You know what you talked about, people people waking up saying, "Hey, I want to talk to a salesperson today." But, but I think that somebody once asked me, well, "You know, how should a a buyer feel about you?" And I think, yeah, you do want to be likable. I said they should be positively neutral about you. <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if they like you, that's bonus, right? If you become yeah. friends and that, that that relationship, that's great. You know, good for you. But that's not the end game, and that's not the plan all yeah. the time. And that's not why I want people to buy from me. Yeah, that's why I thought positively neutral. Right? It's it's a great sort of oxymoronic uh, statement that, yeah, <laughs> that it describes it, and it works. And so, you know, interesting point in the book. You said that that uh, you know, a a lot of recent books and about sales dismiss the importance of relationships, and or they assume that a sellers are already proficient in building relationships, and neither of which, <laughs> well. Neither of which is true, right? Right. It's it's amazing. The one thing that salespeople would say, yeah, I'm good at, it turns out, yeah, they're not very good at it. And I tell them, when we do the training, I'm like, look, you know, I'm going to prove to you in 15 minutes you're not as good at this. This is after they say confidently that one of the, of the six selling skills, fundamental selling skills, I'm really good at connecting with people and making a connection. Mm. And then we give them this quick scenario where, you know, the customer wants to end a new customer. Is this your soccer story? Yeah. Do you mind if I tell it or no? Yeah, go ahead. Go. Okay. So, yeah, this we give them this scenario where it's a new customer. They've agreed to an hour meeting at 3 o'clock. And when the meeting starts, they say, hey, I want to cut the meeting to 30 minutes uh, to see my daughter's soccer game. And it's just fascinating. These people who say, I'm great at building relationship, I'm great at building connections, maybe a handful, maybe on a good day, you might get three out of 20 sales professionals ask a question about the daughter. Mm-hmm. The rest of them go right to the agenda. They go right to, well, uh, what do you want to cover? What do you want to cover in the time they have? Some of them get angry 
they say, well, do you want to know what I would say or what I'm thinking? I'm like, well, what are you thinking? And they're like, well, how dare they? My <laughs> time's valuable. And wh- how, why would they do this? <laughs> and so it's just fascinating to watch. And what the point of that whole thing is that the best of us, uh, particularly those that are blind to it, though, really miss report cues. People are giving us report cues all the time, but we have our own agenda, our own pressures, and we miss them. And then we talk about how we're great at building a relationship, and we're just not. Uh, Dimashio, who has uh, you know the range of appropriate emotional responses, goes from dis- dismissive, disinterested, interested, and overly interested. You know, most people are dismissive. I mean, I, the customer says the daughter line, and they don't even mention it. Mm-hmm. They just say, "Okay, we'll get. Well, I'll, we'll keep it quick." Some people are disinterested. They'll say, oh, that's that's good. You can go to the game. Let's get started. So we're not going to talk about it, but I heard you. There, again, only three of 10 might say, wow, that's great. So what position does your daughter play? Or how long has she been playing soccer? How many games do you get to see? Only, they miss that opportunity. And the whole point is, so what? Like, like you can now, the listener could go, well, so what? You didn't ask about the daughter. Well, rapport in sales is huge. Everything. Because if you find something in common with someone, they want to help you. And we all need help. So finding common is a very human thing. And that's way more important than if I can find something in common with somebody, that's way more important than whatever else I had on my agenda, arguably, in terms of the long-term value of that. Yeah. So lean into those opportunities to, to build rapport and to make that connection. And I just, I'm fascinated to some degree, <laughs> less so as I've gone on, just how many salespeople miss their cues? <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's compounded by the fact they're being told it's not important, which is absolutely ridiculous. And, well, yeah. and the connection you form with another person is this is that's everything about sales. And I have my own soccer story. I've I've told this before. Is you know I've written about it before, where early in my career I'd formed this great rapport with this guy that owned a, a small chain of retailers, and I was selling a computer system to them. And we we're marching on the path, but at some point, the momentum just sort of slowed. And, and you know, I was really anxious to get the deal closed, and it just wasn't happening. And, and this owner of this retail firm was an older guy, a grandfather, and, and he'd invite me in to talk to him, but nothing would ever happen. And so finally, I get down to this sort of last meeting and it sort of dawned on me that he was trying to teach me a lesson, that, that we had built this rapport, but then I'd gotten so focused on getting the order, I had ignored the relationship part. And he had, on his desk, a row of pictures of his grandkids in soccer uniforms. And finally, he invites me back in again. And this time, I lead off by asking a question about the kids. And he made a point just telling me. He was reminding me. Right? Wow. Wow. <laughs> it was a huge, good lesson. Visceral. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> you often learn how to sell from your customers, right? Yes, <laughs> that is true. F- fantastic lesson about, yeah, you can. You just can't give a lip service. You know, if you're building this rapport and this connection, it's, it has to be built on, has to be sustained. Uh, you just can't take it for granted. You know, I can, I can look at a, opportunity, a pipeline of opportunities and, that people have lost and deconstruct the deals, and oftentimes you can trace back the point of failure to right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about relationships of salespeople in this area of relationships is too many of them. It's just off the charts. The other thing that I would say is off the charts is the number of salespeople who think it's about being responsive, that being responsive, getting back quickly is sort of their brand. 
and why they're going to succeed. And we have a lot of fun with that because, you know, we have them decide, you know, we, we, we get people up and, you know, do you want to compete on uh, relationships? Is it about competence or is it about responsiveness? And most people say, you know, a lot of people, it's, I would say 60, 70% over the time say, yeah, I probably try to win on responsiveness. So those three characteristics, I am really highly responsive. And then I say to them, well, you know, what other part of a company might describe themselves as somebody who gets back to people right away, they're quick to respond, and they quickly realize it's customer service. And I say, yeah, you guys are glorified customer service people. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not bad to be responsive, but you don't want to win on that because you can be replaced. It's, it's, it's again, it's, I'm always like, behaviors that salespeople do that can get them replaced by either a robot or customer service or a, a lower cost. Fee. Right. You've got to add value. You've got to. Well, but so I have a, a counter story to that, though. Okay. Because okay. in my first book, I wrote, well, actually, my first two books, I wrote extensively about responsiveness. Okay. You like responsiveness. Oh, good. This will be good. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said in the book, being first to respond is not being responsive. Ah. You're only responsive if, you know, the customer has a question, an inquiry, if you're delivering something of value yes. in your response. And so for me, responsiveness has always been the combination of value plus speed. Yeah. So if I can respond quickly with something of value. So, you know, if somebody <laughs> has a question and and you get back quickly, but you don't know the answer, you're not being responsive. Can I can I use that? I'm gonna use that. That was yeah, good. Sure. Yeah. It's in the books. Go ahead. I mean <laughs> But that's that's what responsive is. It's it's not being first to respond. Yeah, as I said, speed in itself is great in a foot race, in isolation. But it's it's no good in sales without value associated with it. Yeah, no, we would we're in violent agreement. Yeah, well, that's why I thought it was interesting because people sort of say, and I hear this a lot and read it a lot. Is and I absolutely agree, but it just depends how you define responsiveness because I think. You know, it's like uh, you watch a courtroom drama on TV. And the lawyer asks the witness a question, and and they give an answer, and and the lawyer says, "Well, you're not. Be- they're not being responsive. It's not that they didn't answer. They weren't <laughs> answering the question, right? So you got to combine the speed with with the value. And if you do that, hugely effective. Because what are customers trying to do? Customers are trying to, in general, quickly gather information to make a good decision with the least investment of time and effort possible. And so responsiveness, as I define it, has been a huge advantage for me throughout my entire career. Yeah, because you're focused when you're focused on both value and speed. Yeah, not just, yeah. A lot of salespeople, um, I think, focus on the speed part. I mean, they'll say, oh, yeah. "I'm well." They'll say things like, "I'm available 20." I mean, I had a, a partner at a professional consulting company, really smart, impressive guy, and he said, "You know, I told my customers I'm available 24 seven." I'm like, "Wow, you sound like you know." Sound like a Seven Eleven. I mean, what are you doing? That's the brand. I mean, really? <laughs> I'm always open. I mean, come on. I mean, it's it's a way, it's a way to go. But I just wonder if that's really what is they value, and, and how much value is that versus getting a really good answer when I call or you yeah. know, having something. So we're challenging my you know we're challenger. I'm not a big challenger selling fan, except for the idea well, that you're know, challenging know. somebody's thinking or having them think differently is a very big value you can add. Right. Um, if you if you have a relationship and you can effectively say I don't know about that I don't think you need that. There's a story we use example we use called "Bring Me a Rock" that I came up with years ago about the idea the customer says "Bring me a rock" and you know a lot of salespeople run off and get a rock and say "Here's a rock" and they say "Oh I was hoping for a blue rock" and they run off and <laughs> they come back and like oh you know what I was thinking it'd be bigger than this or smoother and so this you know this is what sales so you got to find out so most salespeople. Right. 
relationship only salespeople that think it's about relationship and only about responsiveness with the value will just go get rocks as a percentage. A lot of people will go ask questions about the rocks. Why a rock? Mm-hmm. You know, not why a rock, but what color rock you're looking for? How heavy a rock do you want? It is the challenger or the insight driven salesperson who will say, well, hold on. Are you sure you even need a rock? How did you get to a rock? Where you want to be. So as a salesperson, you want to be questioning the, you know, the, the, the initial request because you, under the guise of not the guys under the real intent of really adding value and getting people what they really need. Yeah. I mean, you talk about curiosity as a lost superpower in the book. And I, I tend to think that's true because we've, we've overscripted salespeople <laughs> and, and don't, you know, the best questions are ones that you didn't know you're going to ask. Right. Yeah. When you got to the meeting. I mean, if you only ask the questions around the script and you get to a meeting, it's like, did you learn anything? I mean, nothing special. Yeah. Um, you know, you didn't take the extra step, go extra step deeper, you know, ask two follow-up questions, all those things. And I see this behavior or hear this behavior on recorded calls all the time. So talk about, you have a phrase used in the book called the expertise trap. So what, <laughs> define that for people. Well, the expertise trap is based upon some research that says that the smarter you are, the less curious you become. Uh, imagine a curve, a, a U-shaped curve, uh, and the axis is low and high knowledge, and it starts out bottom lo- left, you know, bottom left, yeah, low, goes up and then comes back down at high, and that represents the curiosity curve. And what happens is that, you know, people with some knowledge and uh, some interests, you know, they're going to be curious, but people that have no knowledge sometimes are incurious because they don't want to look foolish. But equally, people that have lots of knowledge about a subject can be find themselves not being curious. So there is a trap being the expert be, for two reasons. One, A, either you think you know it all, or even more damning is you think you're supposed to know it all. So you don't want to ask questions that, that maybe reveal. So a customer can use jargon and you think, well, I'm supposed to know that, I guess, because I'm an expert. So I'm not going to ask him what that jargon was. Mm-hmm. Where people in the middle would hopefully say, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with, you know, ABCD. What was that? What does that stand for again? Uh, and so we really have to watch it. The smarter we get, the sort of curse of knowledge, right? The smarter we get, the less curious we become. Yeah. Well, the corollary, though, is, is the Dunning-Kruger effect, which says that your perception, personal perception of how much you know, yeah. uh, is the bigger issue, perhaps, <laughs> because, because then you become incurious and, yep. and lack the desire to learn because, well, hey, I've done this once. I know how it works. Yeah. Or, you know, I've been in sales for five years. I've got it all figured out. As opposed to, I've been in sales for decades. I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, even performing at the top of the game because it changes every day, practically by customer by customer. Yeah, and every and yeah, not that all auditions, but every call you can go. Oh, here's an opportunity I missed. Oh, here's something I should have done differently. Ah, here's the hole I fell into. And I, I mean, sometimes you go, "Wow, I nailed it. That was great. Look what I did there." Um, but <laughs> there are times, uh, you know, and I've written book. Uh, you've written books where you go, "Ah." Now, why did I make that mistake? What caused me to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, what was I thinking when I did that? Well, and I, I give the example of this show, this podcast. So, I don't know, you're probably about the 800th interview I've had. <laughs> I feel and, so special, Andy, when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, we've big audience, lots, lots of value we're, we're delivering. Okay. And, right. and, but the thing is, is that to a certain degree, 
you know, whether you're an author, a thought leader, you know, a sales VP, a CEO, you know, I've interviewed a whole spectrum of people, you would think, well, haven't I sort of heard it all? But the fact is I haven't. You know, every time I interview somebody, I learn something new. Part of the reason why I keep on doing it. And that's a similar thing. You could talk to hundreds of customers. I mean, engage in a conversation, an in-depth conversation like I have with a guest on the show. And if you're curious, you're going to learn something every single time. Yeah. And I say this from the background of somebody with decades of, of incredibly successful sales experience. I'm still learning. So that's why I love doing the show. Well, similarly, you should have that same mindset when you're in sales is, is this curiosity as you talk about being your superpower is, yeah, that's A, what keeps it interesting, what keeps you challenged, uh, what keeps you motivated to serve your customers is learning what's new about them that's different from anything else that you've seen before. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was blessed. I At a school, I got hired by Dow Chemical and I had never had a chemistry course in my life. And that, you know, by, by definition required me to ask a lot of questions. And my my peers uh, wouldn't ask those questions because they were they thought they knew it. Uh, but you know, people like to talk about themselves. People like to talk about their filtration system or their pipes or their whatever it was I was asking about. People like to talk about their stuff. Um, and so I, yeah, I was to- there's another part of that though that you bring out in the in the book, which I thought was was really good. See, I I believe that one of the biggest sources of value that we provide as as sellers to a customer is understanding. You know, if we do a good job of digging in and really understanding the issue they're trying to solve, the objectives they want to achieve, whatever, that has value to them. You know, as they perceive who to make their choice to go with, feeling understood is important. It's a basic human need as well. Yeah, yeah. And you you talk about this in the book because, you know, your job is to out-understand the competition. And I think that's a, a good way of putting it. Yeah, I decided long ago that I want to understand. I just I realized that wow, if I can demonstrate understanding, then people trust the solution. So if they feel like you got it, oh my gosh, you got my situation, you got me, you got my concerns. You know, what do we do? Tell me, tell me the solution. Then that was easy. It's when they don't feel fully understood that you have all these questions about your solution because this doesn't feel right, and it doesn't feel right or make sense because, at some level, this doesn't represent a, a complete understanding of me. So I, I can be persuasive as an X person, but I'd rather not win on that. Well, yeah. It's actually easier to win on out understanding than out persuading. Well, yeah. Understanding is influential. Yeah. You know, I like to say, you know, you want to be influential rather than persuasive. Persuasive is sort of coercive. <laughs> you're trying to force it. Whereas, yeah, if you want to have a, a competitive reason, or if you're sitting there thinking, God, there's another question I could ask the buyer about this. I, I think I understand. I'm not quite sure. It's a competitive advantage to yes, ask bit, that other, <laughs> ask the additional question. Yeah. The customer it, it never resents it. Question. Yeah, they never resent it. They never resent giving you the time in order to answer a good question that you've asked them. No, no, because people want to be understood, and they want they want you to know what they you need to know in order to give them good advice, good value. And this is such a human aspect of sales that that people want to overlook. It's so we talked about before about making that initial connection is this human to human element that cannot be replaced. And yeah, you know, moving on is is. Understanding people want to be understood, as you said, it it builds trust. It, it mitigates the perception of risk. I had a customer, you know, years ago, say to me, uh, "Oh, we got." You know, he finally agreed to talk to me in fifteen minutes, and he goes, "I got fifteen minutes. Tell me about your company." And I said, "Look, I only need three. Can I have twelve to ask you questions?" <laughs> and he said, "Yes." <laughs> but it was like it was like dance monkey dance because that's what you salespeople do. I've got a salesperson on the line who's been chasing me down. 
I know how they are. So go ahead, do your dance. You get 15 minutes. And I I'm love like, I'm that response. That dance. That, that's a loser's dance. That's, that's, that, <laughs> re- that's not a value-add dance. So, And by the way, if you can't explain what you do in three minutes, 15 minutes is probably not going to help you. Well, no, for sure. But I think it's a great response. If you're listening to this and you want a great response for that opening call, if somebody says, yeah, tell me what you do. You got 10 minutes. It's like, yeah, give me three. And then give me the rest to ask you questions. Because I, and I think I even said to him, like, I, when I use my three, it'll be more valuable to you because I can, I can make it relevant. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. So uh, another thing I enjoyed in the book, you talked about uh, telling your customer's story. Um, tell people what you mean by that. This is big. I mean, this is my, this is an original John Reed idea. I had a client recently who said, you know, there's nothing really new or, you know, and I'm like, well, I know this is new because I thought of it (laughs) and I've never seen it anywhere else. Um, And it came about, actually I do it. uh, So I was doing it. And then I noticed that there was this passion and uh, sort of movement to get salespeople to be storytellers. And and, the idea of, you know, you need to tell your story better that you need to tell your clients, you know, the story, case studies, or the story of your company. And in order to make the sale, you know, we have to tell it. So it was like the problem to be solved was salespeople don't talk well enough. Like what, that's, that, that's the underlying belief, mm-hmm. right? That if they could just tell stories better, the, the customers would like it more, which I think is just hogwash. I mean, the storytelling is nice and it's important, but let's not get crazy. Uh, what far interested me, which I noticed was a differentiator in my sales approach, was I had a couple of meetings that, you know, we, there were good discussions. And when I summarized, and I always sort of ask questions, summarize, and then talk about me because I want to out understand. So I have to nail the summary. So the summary was big always for me as a salesperson. And as I started to think about this craft, and you can actually, if you have your A game on, you can t- do the summary in story form, meaning you, you can say to the client, look, here's what I understood five years ago. You know, you joined the organization, you were all excited, uh, you came in, and what you immediately noticed was, and what you're doing is telling th- their story, mm-hmm. telling, sharing back what they told you, but in a story form. And the beauty of that is a couple of beauties. One of the be- beautiful things about it that's uh, not obvious is you can sneak things in. You can say, I'm, I'm guessing you were nervous. It sounds like you might have been excited. I'm, so you can, because you're, you're telling a story, so it doesn't have to be factual. It's a story of them as you see it. And, and then you can ask it, you know, and you can, so when I do this and I play their story back to them, invariably they're like, well, you nailed it. Or, and if you didn't nail it, it's great because they want you to get their story right. Mm-hmm. So many salespeople are like risk averse, like, oh, but what if you tell the story and you're wrong? They're going to fix it. It's their story. <laughs> They're not going to fix your story if it's wrong. <laughs> but so I did stumble upon something that I thought was that it's, it's like the master class of out understanding your competition. Mm-hmm. I don't do it always, but when the time is right, when I have that picture created by the client, when I'm taking my notes and getting the thing together, and, and uh, I, when I do it, it's very powerful as a sales tool. And people will say, well, you really got it. And then I know... You know, it's almost game, set, match. I haven't even talked about me yet. I haven't presented my solution yet. All I've done is listen and tell their story back to them in a way that was compelling and they agreed to. And we're 90% to close. Yeah. And I haven't even talked about what I do. How great is this? <laughs> yeah, and I sort of, I extend that a little bit. I, I take the exact same approach. I've, I've written about this as well. Is that the one story you need to tell is you need to be able to tell the customer story. Yeah. That's the one story a salesperson needs to be able to tell is the customer story. And yeah, it's a combination of what you talked about. And I think if you include also the vision of what 
they're going to achieve yep. through their investment in your solution or working with you, then you've completed that picture. And that's the story you build continuously through the selling process is you're building the story of them. And and I there's a great quote from John, John Steinbeck that I always refer to, which uh, I think actually it might be from East of Eden, I, I think. But the quote is uh, from Steinbeck is, if a story is not about the hearer, he will not listen. The yeah. strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. Wow, that's good. I'm going to steal that too. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Now, when when we teach, when I teach this, and I, it's a nuance, but I understand. I mean, uh, we. My purpose of the of, of the story here is to get to the summary, right? To get to the point of choice. If you, if you think of a classic story, it's okay. Who are the characters? What's the context? Who's the characters? What's the crisis? And so I get them to that sort of point in the story, and then you know, then I'm going to come along and say, okay, you're at a point of choice. You can either stay with what you're doing, but here are the risk, or you can go in this direction. That's where that's the struggle you're having. And they'll say yes, and then you know, then I can come along. Okay, given where you are, here's what I would recommend. Here's how we could help you in that dynamic. So I take them all the way, it, but it, and you can say, well, you're just doing the old pain thing again. But that's not that's not the point. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. Manip- my questions aren't to manipulate. My that selling is like, okay, you got to expand the pain. You got to go ask him about pain. I mean, I never thought that way for a day in my life. That that's what because I, mean, I wanted to be authentic. I wanted to have a conversation, and that it goes where it goes. Yeah. So I tell people, you know, my career, I've taken orders for over $600 million, uh, big systems, small systems. So, you know, huge enterprise, some biggest company in the world. Never once asked anybody about a pain point because (laughs) no one was ever buying for that. They were buying to achieve something. Yeah. What was the outcome that they wanted? So some of the stuff people have been taught, you know, and I don't know. There's some stuff we're taught, like, uh, you know, no's not no, it's just no for now. I'm like, no, no's no. Go move, move do something else. Go find another lead. I mean, you know. <laughs> I know. I, I, this one, because we're hearing this all the, more and more now during this COVID time is, you know, let's manage these objections. Let's handle these objections. I mean, the fact I just laid off 50% of my workforce and you still think I should go ahead. Um, is sometimes <laughs> no is just no. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a early <laughs> early manager who taught me this lesson. Is I have since adopted his his philosophy, or did early on. But he would say, "Yeah, they're not a prospect." He says, "Let me tell you my big world theory." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "It's a big world out there. Go find somebody who wants to buy what we have, what we're selling." And it's like, <laughs> oh, "Okay." I mean, out there you'll find somebody that wants and needs to buy what you have. Yes, or you have to look at what you're trying to sell. <laughs> yeah. but, but yes, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But even a big world, yeah, lots, lots of yeah. products, uh, fine markets that maybe shouldn't. But, but to, um, your, but to your point, I mean, every Edsel made was sold. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they were. Yeah, so my grandparents had one. They were they were kind of cool looking cars. <laughs> Not that I'm old enough to remember, but I do. So, um, <laughs> so I just thought, sort of summarizing. I thought you had a great line in the book. You said it's far better and more differentiating to win by out-understanding your competitors. Show up, listen to them intently, then summarize everything you understand in their story. Yep. And yeah, it's a, it's a great way of like I said, encapsulating a lot of what you were writing about in the book, which I liked. Yeah, I hate salespeople who say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say, I don't think I've ever lost business when I've done it well. In other words, if I've done the storytelling back to them, I, don't, I cannot remember a time when I've done that and they didn't buy from me. 
mm-hmm. but it doesn't always make sense to do it because the calls don't lend themselves to that technique. But if they've got a robust enough discussion and you've, you've gotten into it and you've, you've got this sense, uh, I don't think I've ever lost when I've done that technique. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because you, you triggered a thought in the book is, you know, you're writing about technique and, and, you know, I, I don't think about anything sort of in terms of technique that I do. <laughs> I mean, it's like sort of just part of who I am. Yep. And I think this is, we talked earlier about this is, you know, people having a point of view is, is you're going to embody all those things in your point of view, your philosophy, how you operate. And they're not going to be, they're not going to appear to you as a technique. Oh, I need to consciously yeah. be in the moment, use this technique. It's no, you know, how are you serving your customers? And that's built up of things you've learned over the years. But if you're conscious of it being a technique, then I, it's, it's not going to work for you. Yeah, well, that's the, I mean, yeah, one of the huge problems for me with spin selling was you could, see, I think the customer can see what's being done. Mm-hmm. And they can see, you know, okay, now you're asking about, you're going to ask about the situation. Now you're going to ask about my problem, then the impact. I mean, I think, you know, we're not, very few salespeople of spin were that cl- clever to mask it all and make it look like a natural conversation. But it's attractive. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, if you look at, um, green sheets and, and blue sheets and if you look at spin i mean there's such an attraction to a certain crowd of like engineers accountants of people who aren't by nature don't see themselves as salespeople, don't maybe didn't sign up to be a salesperson that this this structure and this thing is going to even though it's from 1980 uh is going to be this is it you know i can if i fill out these boxes i'll be a good salesperson and it's just i mean one of the reasons it's all failed is because there are learners or buyers of learning attracted to that. Um, even though it, there's no, de- there's no I, don't, I don't think there's any great demonstration that's been very effective. No, I, I, yeah, a couple issues. One is, right, obviously in sales, we have no rigorous studies <laughs> of sales, you know, that we've got self reported data on sales, yeah. but, Ugh. you know, there's been no, comprehensive, you know, sort of clinical type, third-party academic rigorous study yep. of, of sales. So everything is is anecdotal. I mean, of course, we admitted this up front here today that <laughs> that this is, is all anecdotal. I mean, it works for some. Hopefully it works for, for you. But, you know, there will be something but, out there. Well, what's, it's, let me just lay it down there because it's not what's not anecdotal. So, yes, you're absolutely right about sales training, this versus that. What's not anecdotal is adult learning research. So what, whatever sure. you're going to train somebody on, it ought to have certain characteristics, right? Yes. It's got to be contextual. It's got to be, which means relevant. It's got to respect the learner. It's got to challenge their thinking and, and make them uncomfortable. It's, it's got to be a social endeavor. I mean, there's some certain principles around adult learning that sales training companies violate. So even if they argue that their sales training is good, that their method, that the, you know, the models are good or whatever, the way they're actually trying to teach it is not good. And it, there's evidence to back that up, that they're, they're not designed for adult learning. They're much more pedantic, much more, uh, uh, you know, more about the facilitator and less about the learner. Well, yeah, gosh, we could spend a whole other session on, on training. <laughs> shall we? <laughs> yeah, well, I think we shall. I mean, it's because just the way that the so many companies structure it, um, to your point, you know, bring people in a classroom and and they tend to forget all about this thing that's been known for a couple hundred years called the forgetting curve, which guarantees that most of what you're being taught isn't going to be retained. Just start there. So yeah, all the different methodologies you have available today to teach people and to reinforce learning just haven't been embraced the way that, that they need to be. Yeah, we use the analogy of um, 
a restaurant, you know, if a, a restaurant or if, if the food is bad and, and, uh, you know, people don't come back. Um, and so bad training is like bad meal. People don't, you know, people don't value it. They don't like it. it you know, training has a bad reputation and, and deservedly because pe- participants have been served some very bad meals and because they're poorly designed. Often. Yeah, I was well, going to say, it's less about the content and, and more about the delivery, I think, in many cases. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, John, we could, uh, we will have you come back. We'll talk about training. I've got some oh, fun. I'd love to. ideas to bounce off you about that. Um, so if people want to connect with you and learn more about you, how can they do that? Um, you can email me always. I'm at john at jmreidgroup.com. And we have our website, jmreidgroup.com. Um, love to hear from you. Love to learn from you and love to share what we do uh, with, with the, in the world of developing sales capability, sales management capability. It's, a, it's fun work. And uh, I really appreciate the time, Andy, with you today. Yeah, it's been fun. Look forward to doing it again. Thanks, John. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, John Reed, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.